welcome. Yang Mokam Kartia Chalam, Yapangum, Yang Karate Giri, Yat Kripatamaham Bondi, Paramanam Damatam. We salute that all blissful Krishna, by whose grace the mute can become eloquent and the handicapped cross mountains. At all blissful, supremely blissful Krishna, we salute again and again. We have a double bill this morning, friends. When I have finished my talk on mind in the Bhagavad Gita, Dr. Robert Anderson is going to speak to you on the philosopher Miguel Unamuno, the Spanish philosopher about whom you may not have heard, but you will today. My topic is Mind in the Bhagavad Gita. I hope you know your Gita. We sometimes say about a person, he has lost his mind. Oh, she can never make up her mind. He doesn't know his own mind. What is this mind? We talk about it as if we knew what we are talking about, but we don't. That's the sad part. We don't know what we're talking about. Now, mind has been studied systematically in the West for only about a century. The application of psychology as a science to the human mind dates back only about that long. Now, of course, wisdom, wisdom is another story. Wisdom regarding the mind is ancient, whether East or West doesn't matter. For example, from the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, a quotation, the universe is change. Our life is what our thoughts make it. And, he says again, by a tranquil mind I mean nothing less than a mind well-ordered. That's one of the definitions of mind. And then from another poet, stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. And what's the rest of it? You know, minds innocent and quiet make of that a hermitage. Iron bars do not a prison make, nor uh, or stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. I think when I hear that of Jawaharlal Nehru, who was imprisoned, as you know, for political action by the British, and kept in prison for quite a while, and Nehru used that opportunity to write one of the very best books on India that has ever been written, The Discovery of India. It's a history, a history and an analysis of India and her culture, civilization. He did that in prison. And this is the best example that I have in my uh, collection of someone who made a hermitage out of a cage. Wonderful thought, wonderful exposition of India and its story in that book called uh, The Discovery of India. Well, can you guess who said this? I I don't think you can. The highest stage in moral culture is when we recognize that we ought to control our thoughts. 
Anybody have any idea who said that? Charles Darwin. Now you see, the Darwinians have picked up Darwin and made out of him a materialist, an evolutionary, an evolutionist. And the Darwinians have almost entirely forgotten that Darwin had an, a higher expression in his, of his mind. He had another dimension, which Darwinians do not talk about. And that was the dimension which goes into the transcendental, which raises our minds above the level of physical change, transformation, and evolution to the level of thought and analysis, metaphysics. I'll repeat that. He says, the highest stage in moral culture. Well, whoever thought, thought that Darwin was interested in moral culture? Yes, he was. He was not an atheist. He was a, a theist, a believer in God, whatever God may have meant for him at that time. I don't know. But for sure, because I haven't read enough. But he had this courage to say, it's when we recognize we ought to control our thoughts. Of course, that's where... Vedanta begins, that's where yoga begins, and that is our link today with Darwin. But in the West, only with the arrival of Freud and Jung do we find a systematic study of the mind. We find systems of mind study. Now, if you compare all that with what we have in India, what we find in India, I have to come to the Bhagavad Gita to introduce my subject and to introduce that system of yoga. You remember that in the third chapter, Sri Krishna, by the way, it's very appropriate that we talk today about Sri Krishna because his birthday comes up next week. So this is a pre preface and a prelude to the celebration of Krishna's birthday. Anyway, in the third chapter he says, the senses are superior to the material objects. Superior to the objects is the mind. And superior to the mind is the intellect. And is there anything superior to the intellect? Yes, the Atman, the self of man. So you see we have a ladder, we have a scale. Gross objects we all know and can deal with. Above the gross objects are the senses, the sense organs which attract, are attracted to and which pick up the information from the objects of the senses. And relate that back to the brain, to the centers, the indriyas. And there they are collected and coordinated by what we call the manas, the mind, which passes on those impressions to what is called the intellect in English, or buddhi in Sanskrit. And above even the buddhi is the self, or atman of man. Of course, Darwin didn't get that far. <laughs> we have to go to India to find this analysis. And it's very old. It's as far back as the Sankhya philosophy. It goes as far back as that. Now the question is, caught up in mind as we are, Mind is a network of mysteries, shadows, imitations, questions, answers, and no answers, in which we are caught. And what the Gita is telling us in the simplest and plainest language 
controlled by the mind, we are its servant. Controlling the mind, we are its master. The mind is our servant. The mind is our instrument when we have learned to control it from above. So long as we are beneath it and it stands above us and does not help us, that mind is our controller and we are its slave. And this is, this is the message of Swami Vivekananda. This is his Raja Yoga. Well, in this talk, which I am giving you this morning, we're going to explore the Gita regarding the word mind, which is, of course, an English word, a translation of something in Sanskrit. The Bhagavad Gita uses five different Sanskrit words in telling us about the mind. Manas, buddhi, chetas, chitta, and atma. I'm going to go into that a little bit later to explain what those differences are. But all of them have been translated by the translators into English as mind. So we can use the verses in which these words occur to understand, explain to us what uh, it's telling us about the mind. What do we learn from the Gita's statements regarding mind? Well, in the first verse, in the first chapter, uh, Sri Krishna is listening to Arjuna's long speech, and uh, Arjuna says, "My mind seems to whirl. I am I'm in a tizzy, to put it in slang. My mind seems to whirl. I have lost my bearings. I I'm confused. It's." moving at an impossible pace. And he appeals to Sri Krishna to straighten it out for him. Now, if that's true, then the mind must be some kind of a, like, like a material object. How could it whirl? How could your mind whirl if it were not an object? So the mind is considered an object, first of all something material-like, which can be turned, whirled, or stilled, as the case may be. And that's reinforced by the one I just read to you about uh, the uh, senses being superior to the objects and the mind is superior to the senses. But the mind itself is an object to the buddhi, to the intellect, so this, again, brings us back to our stepladder, senses, manas, buddhi, atma. In the last chapter, the 18th chapter, he says, let's make the mind one-pointed. You must make the mind one-pointed. Now, if, if it's not a material object, how can we make it one-pointed? You say, oh, that's just a figure of speech. That's just figuratively. I don't think so. I think in the West we have to learn to understand that the mind is material. Not gross material, like this pulpit. Subtle material. It's very difficult, I've tried it in so many ways, to get us who have not got this system of understanding to agree that mental things are material. They are made of subtle stuff which follows laws 
of cause and effect. And it is involved in time and space. We have to get rid of this idea in the West that mind is something vacuous, something you give it a poof and it'll go off in the wind. You take a trace of the mind and then write something down and then it's gone. Somewhere to limbo. There's no limbo. No limbo. There's a record. There's a record in the subtle matter of everything that the mind does, says, thinks, projects. All of these things are material because the mind is material and nature. Well, in chapter 7, the features of the mind, uh, the features of nature are described. And uh, I think I'm going to look that one up for you. Chapter 7. Fire, Vayu, air, Ka, space, mind, intellect, and egoism. This is the way the Gita has divided up our nature, our subtle nature, and our gross nature. All of the gross nature is taken care of by the gross elements, and then they have subtle parts which make up the subtle element, the subtle nature of our mind, which is manas, buddhi, ahankara, egoism, and citta, memory, is not mentioned here, but that is also a part of that mind. All of these uh, are of a material nature, and uh, we have in chapter 8, Sri Krishna telling Arjuna, fight with your mind and understanding absorbed in me. You're to fight the battle that I have indicated to you is your duty. With your mind absorbed in me, absorbed, it's a substance, it can be absorbed, it can take up something and be absorbed in it. Mind and understanding, both absorbed in me. So, mind has these different aspects. Mind and reason, or understanding, have separate functions. According to the Shankara position, the Shankara description, which is not our subject today, but nevertheless, I'm bringing it in because it helps us to understand. Mind can be, as a whole, mind in the general, as a general term, is understood in Vedanta to be divided into functions. One of our swamis used to say, "It's like a, um, it's like a um, station master at a small train station. He wears one cap when he's carrying the baggage." He wears a different cap when he's a ticket taker, and uh, he also has to flag down the train, and that makes him gives him a different function. So the antha karana, the inner organ of our being, takes on different functions or offices as the need is felt. Memory is one. Intellect, intelligence, decision emotional reaction in buddhi then the manas which receives the information from outside manas and buddhi and then ahamkara which puts its stamp on it and says this is my mind this is my mind do you recall Chapter 10 in the Gita, 
where the manifestations of the Lord are described. You know, he says, of the mountains, I am Mount Meru. Of waters, I am bodies of water, I am the sea. Of words, I am Om, and so on and so forth. All that wonderful description. And he tells us all of these are the his special manifestations. And he says, of sentences, of, of declarations, thou art that, I am that, I am this, I am that. Verse 22 tells us, of the senses, I am the mind. So mind is sometimes called the chief sense organ. We have five sense organs, as you know, five senses commonly. But mind is sometimes and very often classified as the chief sense organ. Why? Because all of those organs, the touch, the sight, the hearing, the taste, smell, have to be collected and referred back to the mind to receive and understand and sort them out. So it in itself is a kind of sense organ. It has to refer what it gathers to the buddhi or the intellect. See, trouble is in the West we mix all these things up. We can't separate these things out for ourselves. We don't really try. We don't have any. Um, we don't have a, a ruler by which to measure these things. But here we are in the Gita with a system, a classification of the things which come to us through our senses and our mind, and shows us the order in which it has, they have to be received, in which they have to be passed on to a higher power. It's the chief one of the senses because it can control. As I say, it can control the lower ones and pass the information on to the higher. Again, the Gita shows us that mind is an agent, a creator. In the fifth chapter, where he talks about yoga, and beginning to talk about yoga, only with the body, the mind, and the understanding do yogis act. He's talking about yogis. He's going to tell us how to meditate pretty soon. In the fifth chapter, he's approaching the sixth chapter, he says, only with the body, the mind, and the understanding, plus the senses, do the yogis act. Now here, whose mind are we talking about? I'm going to read uh, the sixth verse of chapter 10. Where he tells us what kind of mind it is. The seven great rishis of old, as well as the four ancient manus, possessed of powers like me, were born of my mind. So uh, the next step in Sri Krishna's instruction on the mind is to tell us that this mind is his, not ours. We put the label ahankara, I, me, mine, on the mind and think it is ours. And we act as if it were ours. But he has shown us here our foolishness and how much better it would be and how much more like yogis it would be, we would be, if we could understand that that mind is divine. 
it still has to be included in our comprehensive picture of the mind. But in truth, in truth, this mind which we studied, are studying this morning, is called the divine mind by Sri Krishna. And you know, the funny part of it is that when the illumined souls speak, they talk to us as if they perfectly well understood that the mind was not theirs. Go to Vivekananda, Brahmananda, Sri Ramakrishna. All the great teachers that we know have been able to say, this is not my mind, this mind belongs to him or her. And then we learn in the Gita that though it easily is influenced by senses, the mind can be controlled. You remember where Arjuna says, I, the mind seems to me to be as restless as the wind. It goes here, it goes there. I have no way of controlling it. Arjuna says, I have tried to control my mind and I am failed. I know that I cannot. How, oh Lord, is this mind to be controlled? And then we have to go back to the sixth chapter and we are told there exactly how it's done. He says, by abhyasa and vairagya. Abhyasa, practice, and vairagya, discrimination. Why we cannot control our minds now is because we have not sufficiently practiced the ways of controlling it which are well known and attested to. And we have not renounced the obstacles which draw that mind away. What is renunciation? What is this vairagya? The vairagya part of this is really the difficult part. You can tell, tell people all over the world, control your mind, I'll give you exercises, I'll teach you, I'll give you a class in mind control, and so on. You can do that. But then when, it's, when push comes to shove and you discover that um, controlling is not quite so easy as I thought it was, even with directions... And, of course, it's because the mind is not sufficiently detached and it's groping, it's growing out and groping for new experiences. It looks all around it for new kinds of adventures and excitements and contacts. Vairagya means the cutting off of those contacts, the cutting off of that seeking outside, that constant seeking for new and exciting developments. The greed of the mind for new food, new kinds of food, that has to be curtailed. That's what meant by Vairagya. So, Sri Krishna tells him, how do you control your mind? Oh, yes, it is difficult. It's like the wind, but it can be controlled by abhyasa and vairagya. Practice, practice, practice. And renunciation of desires, the curbing of the externality. As the Upanishads say, the Lord somehow created the mind in a way that it wants to go out all the time. Some wise man discovered by turning his mind within, he discovered the great self, the Atman, which is beyond the mind. And then we learn that it can be controlled if we practice meditation. 
And the next chapter, of course, it tells us how to do that. I'm going to read some of that for you. <clears throat> the yogi should constantly practice concentration of the heart. So, heart comes into this. Emotions are involved. We want to get our heart into it, as well as our mind. The yogi should constantly practice concentration of the heart, retiring into solitude, alone, with the mind and body subdued, and free from hope and possession. There, seated on that seat of the yogi, making the mind one-pointed, and subduing the action of the imaging faculty hmm. and the senses, let him practice yoga for the purification of his heart. With the heart serene and fearless, firm in the vow of brahmacharya, of continence, with the mind controlled, ever thinking of me, let the aspirant sit in yoga having me as his supreme goal. Thus always keeping the mind steadfast, the yogi of subdued mind attains the peace residing in me, the peace which culminates in nirvana or moksha. So, the subdued mind is to lead to divine mind, and when the divine mind is recognized, then the meditation becomes much easier when we recognize that this mind of ours, which is so troublesome and we are trying to control, really doesn't belong to us. And we practice devotion and surrender to the divine. Then that divine comes and takes hold of the mind and pulls it, pulls it toward itself like a magnet and pulls it up. Well, I want to tell you a little story. The, you practice meditation to get serenity. Um, there was a uh, there was an inn in India. No, this isn't in India. No, I'm sorry, my mistake. It was an inn in the west, where a two horse traveler, travelers by horseback arrived for the night, and they were having supper together, and both of them were happened to be clergymen. And uh, the clergyman, the first clergyman, said, do you want to take a bet? I'll bet. They talked, talked about meditation. They were discovering it. And one of them said, you know, I've been trying to meditate. But I'll, I'll, can I bet with you? I'll bet you cannot meditate for five minutes straight. I'll bet you my horse that you can't meditate five minutes straight without breaking, without thinking of something else. And the man was game. He was, thought he was a good meditator, and he was game, and he said, all right, I'll take that bet. And they both began to meditate. And then the second one said, will I have to give him my saddle, too, if I lose the horse? <laughs> That's how easily it breaks, you know? It breaks that easily. Uh, we could give many other references, but as you see, Arjuna's ego is appealed to, and so is ours, and I'm trying to appeal to yours. Uh, by our teachers, we are exhorted to do spiritual practice called sadhana. The computer doesn't have an ego unless you program it in. I, I hope they don't ever program ego in computer. Isn't it fortunate not to have an ego? Computer truly, with all of our absorption in it, is truly a superficial thing. It cannot think as we think. It cannot really think as we think. It is not yet a human mind, what to speak of a divine mind. Well, the Gita has shown us this, and uh, it has shown us even better 
the picture of God waiting for us when the mind is controlled. The mind quieted and purified becomes the spirit itself, the Atman. Sri Ramakrishna gave a very famous definition. He said, pure mind, pure intellect, and pure Atman are one and the same. That is to say, when the mind is pure, it's absolutely calm. When the intellect is purified, it's absolutely calm. And there is nothing that is absolutely calm and pure but the self. And so they are all one. I now want to turn the service over to Dr. Robert Anderson, who has been a long time associated with University of Michigan and now lives in Texas. He's going to talk to you about another great Vedantist in his view that we have not known, Miguel Unamuno of Spain, the Spanish philosopher. I've been reading about him in preparation for this, listening to Dr. Anderson. And um, somebody has said that he was a great pessimist. I am convinced that he is not a pessimist. He is a realist. Unamuno is not a pessimist, but a realist. You know, Swami Vivekananda said, Vedanta is neither pessimism nor optimism. It is realism. And that's uh, what you're going to hear, I think, from Dr. Robert Anderson, who is about... Thank you, Swami. And also I want to thank Maharaj for this opportunity. He's had the confidence in me today. Uh, catching my breath for a moment. <laughs> um, I want to say that all of the things that Swami has just said are all here. <laughs> and what does here mean? Well, uh, as Swami told you, I have been studying... Um, I'm a student of international literature, I might say, all my life, and I discovered Vedanta over 50 years ago and immediately fell in love with what I found were sublime sayings and the kinds of things that Swami has been saying today that we're all familiar with, so I could never leave it alone. And I was very imbued with the authors uh, that, are, that we all know in the long lists. I won't take time to go into you know about the transcendentalists and Emerson and Thoreau and Walt Whitman. And we find it in Shakespeare, we find it in Tolstoy, we find it in Dickens, we find it anywhere we want to. And one place that I found that has never been mentioned to my knowledge and as Swami has said, Miguel de Unamuno y Hugo was a great Spanish philosopher who passed out of the body in 1936. And that's an important date. At that time, he was in his upper 60s. As you know, uh, in Spain, it was a very sad time. The phalangistas, or the fascists, were in power. And it was the beginning of the Civil War, which was one of the most tragic wars. Spain was completely abandoned by the world in the uh, beginning of the, the oncoming of the Second World War, which you know Hitler began in September of 1939. But I won't control that. As a background, that's what was happening in Spain. And Unamuno tragically died of a heart attack when one of his students came in and showed him the fascist uniform that Unamuna didn't want to uh, have anything to do with. And as Swami has very well introduced me without knowing the idea about the, the theme of uh, Unamuno being a pessimist or a, an optimist, I would say, after having studied Unamuna 55 years and in all humility, uh, definitely I find him, of course, to be an optimist. And he is, for me, he is a mystic. You may have heard that his two most famous philosophical treatises are called The Tragic Sense of Life 
and the other one is the agony of Christianity. And that gives us the key of the word, the verb to agonize. So that is what Unamuno was doing as a mystic and as a an optimist, he was agonizing because he wanted so desperately to find God. And in my book, which has 25, actually now more than 25 chapters, that's a joke, that's the cosmic joke also, Unamuno says, I want to give one quote, and I don't have it with me, so if I'm just a little wrong, bear with me. We all know the beautiful quote where our beloved Sri Ramakrishna Ji says, Oh, Holy Mother, Another day has passed, and I have not seen you. That frustration, that longing, that yearning that we all are following. Now, that's the quote that I loosely, you all know, from our beloved Sri Ramakrishna. And I have the quote. I'm going to bring it back in September when I go home to get the manuscript. Unamuro says, very specifically, uh, there's a quote where he says, um, me dicen, excuse me to say it in Spanish first, it's very short. Me dicen que para ver a Dios el hombre tiene que morir. Yo quiero verle. And that means they tell me that in order, in order to see God, you have to die. I want to die quote from Unamuna. I think that's very close to the Ramakrishna saying Swami and very beautiful. He was very sincere. So um, I'll just give you uh, in a short time uh, only a note that might be boring. <laughs> so I'll give you a list of the themes that I find as Swami, so many of them Swami has already said today, and specifically I didn't expect Swami to mention the myth of madness. In my chapter 12, Unamuno talks about the myth of madness. What is the difference between madness and, uh, in Spanish, it's called locura versus cordura. And that's the word that's used in the Quixote, you know. So this goes across all of Spanish literature, as it goes across all the literatures of the world. But um, so we find it in the Quixote. We find the um, water imagery. Uh, it goes back, uh, Unamuno was very uh, big in water imagery, I'm sorry, back, um, symbolizing cosmic consciousness. And uh, the symbols that he uses, as we all know again, and as Swami has already mentioned some today, the ocean, Brahma, the lake, the rivers, rain, uh, melting snow, dew, el rocio, and mist. In Spanish, mist is niebla which is one of the most important novels of Unamuno called Niebla or Mist, which we know as Maya, of course. And then there was um, the concept of the oneness, the non-dual, the Advaita, the splitting of the, he has a chapter on the splitting of the self, the duality, and the multiplicity of the self. All of these things have come up in Swami's talk again today. Um, reincarnation, there's a place where Unamuna says, la cuna es tumba, the cradle is the tomb, and then he turns it around, the tomb is the cradle. So what does that tell us about the circular, cyclical nature of existence and coming back and all this? So Unamuna was a, I would say again there, a, an optimist you know, about life being eternal and always coming back. There is a chapter which we have here on um, the bumblebee and Sri Krishna. And the first place that I really had to dig that I couldn't find, I, I, was, I have to go back and tell you, I was suspecting as I was reading Unamuno all those years that he had read uh, Vedanta, that there was no place where he mentions anything until finally I went through his essays. He has two very thick volumes of essays, volume one and volume, I think volume one, chapter, page 441, he says, he mentions specifically, the only, one of the only places he mentions the Upanishads. And I thought, aha, finally I've got it. The Upanishads, he says, Esho me dicen con los Upanishads, yo soy eso, which means thou art that, no? 
as we know as Tatuan Asi. So Unamuno was aware of that, and he mentions the Upanishads. And this is what I want to bring to you today, that we all need to work together to encourage studies. And anyone who has ideas, you're welcome to contact me, and I'm open to more ideas, and I have many more ideas. I know we don't have much time. If you'd like a copy of my description of the book with the chapters afterwards, I'll be glad to give those copies to you. And uh, I'm available at any time to talk to you informally uh, about what we want to do. The main point is that we want to um, include Unamuno in our list of Vedantic international writers. He was a philosopher, a poet, a dramatist, a novelist, and what I leave out, an essayist. And his um, most important work, as I said, is The Tragic Sense of Life and the Agony of Christianity. If we have time, I might mention life is a dream. I haven't mentioned another concept, which is, again is the levels of consciousness. Uh, and in the Upanishads, we have the four levels. And he was very preoccupied with the level of dream, life as a dream, la vida es sueño. And that, again, had been in Spanish literature earlier with uh, Pedro Calderón de la Barca, wrote the most famous play called Life is a Dream, la vida es sueño y los sueños sueños son and dreams are nothing more than dreams. In fact, that theme had been carried over in literature in German, into, into, into German literature by Grillparzer, who was an Austrian dramatist. He also wrote Das Leben ein Traum, which we can look at and compare and find Vedantic themes there. And um, I wanted to say the, the most, maybe the most telling theme from the Upanishads is where Unamuno says, our lives are the rivers that are going to flow into the sea. And this was not original from Unamuno. It had been said much earlier. In the Renaissance of Spain, there was an author called Jorge Manrique, who, and nobody paid any attention to this. But he had said, obviously, it's from the Upanishads, he said, our lives are, nuestras vidas son los ríos que van a dar en la mar que es el morir. And that means, as you know, our lives are the rivers which are going to flow into the sea, the ocean of Brahman being intended, which is death, as he says it. So this, these themes have a long, long tradition. They have been there for many, many centuries in literature, and yet nobody has put them together and brought them into the modern perspective of Vedanta, and I find this is a very pregnant area. We have a lot of work to be done. And there is no moi here, as you say in French. There's no me. My name is Anama, <laughs> no name, because I, I can't do too much more at my age. I want to work with this, but I have been, as Unamuno says, agonizando, agonizing for many, many decades. And having done this alone, because most of the Spanish professors, professors of Spanish literature, with whom I talked and some I taught with and some I studied under, they did not know any of this about Unamuno because the time in Spain had been wrong. Uh, because of the fascists, Unamuno, I think that's why Unamuno wrote this in a cryptic manner. But I have dedicated all that time to point it all out and give copious examples of the um, themes where they're found, in what dramas, in what place. His dramas are very interesting because there are 12 dramas. The most important one is called El Otro, which means the other one. And again, as Swami was telling us, which one? Which is the mind? Which is the self? Which is the who am I? And this man, um, who is El Otro, is played against another one. Actually, Unamuno was obsessed with the theme of Cain and Abel also. So he played with Cain. He would say, Cain is tu? Who are you? He said, oh, I'm not, I'm not Cain. He called him Cain y Abel in Spanish. Cain and Abel. He said, I'm not. You know, sorry, I'm not. He said, who, who are you? Yo soy el otro. Always, I am the other one. I'm not me. 
or which one am I? Where am I going to find? What am I going to find? How can I find all the things that Swami said this morning about reality and irreality? And his 12 dramas, I think, are the most fascinating part of all his works because the dramas are laughingly, and I say that seriously, uh, his dramas are metaphysical. So what does that mean? It means they, have never, they were never intended to be presented on the stage as dramas. People would sit there and be bored to death because they are for people like you who are intellectuals and interested in hearing concepts and ideas and finding God. Huh? That's his theme here, la búsqueda, la búsqueda de Dios, the, the, the search for God in one's life. What does God mean? All these meanings that we have. And as Swami said, the meanings of self and the meanings of mind and the meanings of all these things. So Unamuno um, did all of that in his dramas. So as I said, they were never put on the stage, but they are... Uh, I recommend highly uh, that you read them. As Vedantists, you will find them fascinating because those, those dramas all take on a different aspect, like the splitting of the self in El Otro, and um, the concept, one other concept he had is the concept of being unborn. Well, we know how it says in the Bhagavad Gita, no, that this is unborn. That's a term that we use. That's so Vedantic. But the Spaniards look at it and say, well, maybe he's a little bit nutty. I don't know what. But the word they use in Spanish is desnacer. It's made up. You see, desnacer is the, the opposite of nacer. Nacer, we have the word nascent in English, meaning uh, being born, from the Latin verb to be born. So desnacer is translated to be unborn. So that is another. I think that's all I can say today with the time being short, um, unless anyone has any questions, or I would be glad to see you informally at any time I'm available for today and tomorrow informally to see anyone if you'd like to talk further about this. Om, thank you, Swami. <laughs>